previously on the Damage Control Podcast. I was uh, riding my horse through like uh, kind of woodsy areas and it was like in the morning and there was mist and there was like shafts of sunlight coming through the mist and all of that. Uh, it's really, really pretty. I was like crossing a stream and hanging from a tree was a dead body and I was like, oh shit. And I like walked up to it and I was looking at it and then four guys came out of the bushes uh, to attack me. They had like used it as bait to uh to to lure me into a trap it's okay i killed them and took all their money sketcher boots and now back to the show Indeed, welcome back, D1s, for part two of this episode. If you're just now joining us and you have no idea what's going on, then go back and listen to part one. I mean, in general, it's just a good idea to listen to all episodes of the Damage Control Podcast, because at least one ep- one time an episode, there will be pure, unadulterated, comedy-ish gold. Anyway, so if you don't remember where we left off, Ryan was just teasing the upcoming segment in which I had asked him to share the movies that he had chosen to talk about in his film appreciation class this semester, and he predicted that I might find reason to complain, which felt out of left field, if you ask me. Why would I complain? You always about like what? you like always like verbally roll your eyes when I start talking about teaching my class. Um, so no. I was surprised when you asked me specifically to do I it. I do not. You 100% do. I, I've, I even told you recently that I would be interested in sitting in on a class. Cause I think, I think you're probably a quality instructor. You've, your, your pedagogical skills are, uh, you know, par excellence. And I would love to see it, uh, live in, in, in living color. Oh, well that's very nice of you. Oh, uh, you're a dick. <laughs> All right, so what John asked me to do is just kind of go through um, and talk about each of the movies I selected. Uh, I won't spend a whole lot of time on any one of them because there's like 15 of them. Um, so yeah, Let's do it quick. What's that? I said, let's do it quick. Let's, okay. So the first one is Singing in the Rain. Um, and I picked that one because the first day of class, we um, covered like early film history and the transition from the silent era to the sound era. And that's what that movie is about. It's about movie stars transitioning from... Uh, being silent movie stars to being movie stars in in talkies. Uh, it's also it, one of interesting. Yeah, it's also one of the best films ever made. Um, it's really, really, really good, and it's really entertaining. Um, and you know, there's folks in I, I there's just folks that don't like musicals, uh, but I've not encountered anyone that doesn't like this movie. It's kind of like I think universally appealing, and so I, in general, I try to pick things that my students are gonna like. Uh, I I, I want to challenge them. Uh, but I save more challenging stuff for later in the semester. And I still, even when it's things that are challenging, I still try to make it things that are entertaining um, or accessible because uh, I don't want to turn them off. It's the whole point of the class is it's an appreciation class. Um, anyway, yeah. so yeah, Singing in the Rain is the first one. Uh, the sec- okay, hold on real, real okay. quick. Let's yeah. let's take a pause okay. uh, because I think like a, one aspect of the segment is going to be uh, John disappoints Ryan by admitting uh, to movies he's never seen oh, before. Okay. I don't think I've I don't think I've ever seen Singing in the Rain. Oh, 
Uh, it's really good. Yeah. You would like it. It's it's very entertaining. I mean, I know the song, <laughs> and I can picture the dance number, but that's about it. Well, there's many dance numbers. Um, and I mean, the one with the light light pole. That's singing in the rain. That right? is. That's singing in the rain, and that's the titles the title yeah. song. Uh, but there's a really great make em, a song called "Make Them Laugh." Uh, there's a really great number uh, called Moses Supposes where the movie stars are trying to like learn diction. And so uh, mm. Gene Kelly is like uh, being taught elocution and he's having to do all these different like verbal exercises and they turn one of them into a song at one point. It's really entertaining. Um, also, um, it's the, 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 the female lead, the ingenue is played by Debbie Reynolds, who is Carrie Fisher's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so RIP to yeah, both. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so week two, we talk about story structure and screenwriting, and we watch a movie called Adaptation, which is uh, written by um, Charlie Kaufman and directed by Spike Jones. stars Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman's fictional twin brother. That's a really fun one to watch because it's... Uh, like it's kind of hard to describe but like okay so there's a a real life person named susan orlean who works for the new yorker she's a writer for the new yorker and she wrote an article and then a book about this guy uh who uh was arrested for stealing orchids from like a florida nature preserve and there's a whole story around why he did that and what he was up to and who this guy is as a character and the book she wrote was called the orchid thief um and the, a movie studio hired Charlie Kaufman to adapt The Orchid Thief into a movie. But the majority of the book is really about flowers and is about, like, the beauty of, and majesty of flowers. And so he was having trouble figuring out how to adapt it into a movie. And so he ended up writing a movie about himself trying to adapt the book The Orchid Thief into a movie. Uh, and in the context of the movie, he writes himself into the movie. It's very meta. Um, and, uh, for whatever reason he decided the real Charlie Kaufman decided to invent a twin brother named Donald. Um, he doesn't really have a twin brother, but the movie is credited to both of them and they were both nominated for Academy Awards. Um, and it's That's kind weird. of, yeah, it's, and it's kind of fun cause you know, it's about a screenwriter. So you see some of the screenwriting process, uh, but it also, it makes explicit reference to story structure and things like that, which is what we would have talked about that day. And then it's always kind of fun to lower that boom on the students that, oh yeah, by the way, Donald Kaufman is not a real person. Um, and then mm. we have a whole conversation about why that is and why he might've been invented. And, um, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a really useful film for talking about uh, a lot of things that have to do with story structure and like, uh, the idea of self-actualization and uh, character building and all that stuff. So that's that one. So the third week, uh, we talk about pre-production and um, the like various roles uh, that folks have in, in pre-production. Um, and a lot of that gets focused on the producer because the producer is kind of the... Uh, the most active person early on in a film's uh, kind of like the, like the birthing process of a film. And so the player is a movie uh, by written and directed by Robert Altman. And it's about a, a movie studio executive who's a producer and his whole job is to hear pitches from writers and decide what gets made and what doesn't get made. And through a series of events, he ends up accidentally killing a screenwriter and has to like uh, try to evade capture for having done that. Um, try to like uh, get out of it. Uh, and it's also incredibly meta because the, there's a whole series of scenes where the, this one particular movie gets described and it gets used as leverage against somebody else, whether or not they're going to make the movie and how it gets made. 
And at a certain point, you sort of start to realize you're kind of watching a version of that movie. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> um, anyway, it's uh, but it's also it's Robert Altman, and he had a very particular style that he used in this movie that is different than what you're sort of used to watching. Any Robert Altman movie in particular has a lot of overlapping dialogue. Um, he was a big fan of kind of like an, it's a very improvisational style and people talking over each other. And that happens a lot in this movie. And he, then he also uses a zoom lens a lot. So like you'll be in like a big party scene with people and you'll hear everyone talking over each other. And then the camera will kind of zoom in on a, on a certain pair of people. And the, the sound will also kind of zero in on them and everything else will kind of go back to the background for a minute. And it, it gives you this sort of like paranoid feeling of surveillance, which plays into the whole like, uh, um, uh, atmosphere of the movie, and and it, but it's just it's real different. Like most people don't make movies like that. Like characters in movies usually speak, and then the next character speaks, and it's very like ordered in that way. Um, and Robert Altman breaks those rules, and so it's kind of fun to challenge the students with that and talk to them about like if if they liked it or didn't like it and why and how it made them feel and that sort of thing. Um, okay. So then the next film we start getting into genre after that. Um, and so we talk about the Western and I do a whole thing about what the classic Western is and how it was one of the more successful genres in American film history until it wasn't and it died. Um, but we, I kind of spent a lot of time establishing, um, all the tropes and conventions of conventional Westerns. And then we watch Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven and, uh, we have a whole discussion and they write an essay about how that movie subverts genre conventions because it's, um, toying with the idea of what a western is or can be um it you know does things like um uh the the main bad guy is the sheriff as opposed to you know an outlaw because the outlaw is the hero and stuff like that um it's also just a really fucking good movie and uh they usually like it and there's an interesting comment that comes up all the time that i haven't really had a whole lot of um like juice to deal with because of like the way the class was structured and the, the topics we were covering, uh, Morgan Freeman's in that movie. And, you know, the movie takes place in the old West and not one character makes any mention of his race, nor is he ever, um, like treated any differently than any other character in the film. And that comes up in discussion. Like I tend to, I don't t- typically bring it up, but the students are like, we thought it was weird that like, nobody talked about how this like Clint Eastwood's partner is black and no one was mean to him. And it's like the 1800s. And I'm like, yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Um, but like, I, I never really had a good place to go with that. And I, the way I'm teaching the class this semester, I actually think I can bring it back later in the semester and we can talk about it more. Um, cool. The next week after that, we're still uh, working on genres and we're also, as we're doing this, we're also talking about film production techniques and stuff. And so we get into lighting and uh, some camera, di- different camera stuff. And so I talk about film noir because film noir kind of has the most distinctive lighting of any of the film genres. And so we talk about a lot about what the genre conventions of film noir is and where it came from and also how the lighting works and all that sort of stuff. And in years past, um, I showed them a very classic movie called Double Indemnity, uh, which is about an insurance salesman uh, trying to setting up a murder. Um, this year I'm changing it up and I'm showing them Memento, which is Christopher Nolan's film from 2000, 2000 or 2001. Um, and it's uh, it's a neo-noir. Uh, have you seen this one, John? 
Nope. No, I think you would love this movie. So Guy Pierce is the main character. He's a guy who um, is investigating his wife's murder. His wife was raped and murdered in his house. Um, and in the course of her assault, he tried to stop it and uh, received a really significant head wound. Um, and his injury caused him to have a particular condition where he can't make new short-term... He can't make new memories. He has no no short-term memory, and he can't really make long-term memories anymore either. So he's really just sort of stuck where his last memory is of his wife dying, but he's living this life where he's trying to figure out who killed her. But if you can't make new short-term memories, it's very tricky to try to make new memories. And so he has a whole system of like notes and tattoos and all kinds of stuff, but it's real like... You, you never know if he's being manipulated by anybody else, if they're feeding him wrong information or trying to use him. And then the movie is constructed in a really kind of crazy way where um, the scenes alternate between color and this more sepia black and white. All the scenes that are in color um, are in reverse order. Uh, so like as you know, you watch sort of one scene and he's doing something, you don't really know why he's doing it because you don't know where he just came from. Um, and so when you cut, get to the next scene that's in color, it always ends with like whatever the, the prior scene had begun with. So you're sort of learning that part of the story backwards. Uh, and then the scenes that are sepia are all moving forward. And eventually they sort of meet uh, in the middle. And that's kind of where the movie ends. Um, it's, so it's a really like uh, intricately constructed movie. And it's kind of a head trip to watch, especially for the first time. Uh, and it's one of Christopher Nolan's first movies. Uh, it's a second film, actually. Uh, it's a very, very good um next is a french new wave film called uh cleo from five to seven it's a french film from the 1959 1960 i think uh it's part of the french new wave that week uh i have to cover um post-world war ii international cinema because there's a whole wave of films coming from all over the world that came out after world war ii if you think about like um because of World War I and then again World War II, the United States was the dominant film industry in the world because the rest of the world was kind of focused on being at war or being in the aftermath of World War I. Uh, they couldn't really... like they, they, There were films being made in other countries, but they just didn't have the infrastructure and the economy to support it the way the United States did. And in particular, our, our um, country was never devastated by war, like physically. Um, and so... But post-World War II, movie making becomes much cheaper because the equipment gets cheaper and lighter. And so um, we kind of get to a place where kind of anyone can make a movie. And so you have all these people around the world making movies for the first time and also a different class of people making movies, whereas before it was always an exercise of the wealthy. Now people who are from like middle and lower class can start to make movies. And so you get uh, a real different perspective in storytelling uh, coming in different corners from different corners of the world. So I'm supposed to like, sort of cover that era um, the problem is because it's all like France and Egypt. I'm not sorry, Egypt, France and Italy, and uh, the UK and Ooh. Japan. Are Two the, episodes the, in a row, I get to play the technical India, difficulty actually. song. Um, That's exciting. It, Call and it's all ended. post World War II. It's all really bleak and so depressing because everyone's recovering from the war. Also, uh, and, you know, I feel like I made a like mistake in and mass giving Professor Ryan and free reign to the, be Professor like, Ryan. Class of the very poor. Segment. And so I've actually last. I'm on my third film for this okay. for this particular week of the class. He's gonna trying to find something the students will enjoy. I assume he's going to call me back. Pretty bleak. Oh no, they're calling. He hasn't yet though. I wonder how that's talking and John wasn't on the line but he was pretty wasn't it i mean i line. i know this is hypocritical but wasn't it funny that he was like oh i'll keep i'll keep this short and then he basically lectures for each one and why he chose it 
There he is. We can't make it two episodes without uh, having some technical difficulties. I never stopped recording. No, well, neither did I. I also uh, made fun of you quite a bit uh, while, while we were off the phone. What was the last thing you heard me talking about? Oh, that is... <laughs> Busted. I don't remember. I have no idea. Well, I'm just uh, going to keep France going. France and Egypt. Oh, Egypt. Good, good. Okay, so I'm just going to keep going from where I was. But the main, the main thing is, you know... All these people are making movies that weren't able to make them before, uh, and what, what 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 that means is you're getting like a much more like working class, lower class perspective on the world. But the world is a shitty, like difficult place to live in post World War II. So all the films are really depressing and bleak. So I've been trying different things that the students might enjoy, and I haven't found anything yet. So I'm hoping this one they'll enjoy. <laughs> um, gotcha. uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm gonna do if they hate this one. Um, the next week we talk about sci-fi and visual effects and stuff like that. And I've been showing them, um, what's that movie called? Um, Annihilation. And I decided, yeah, yeah, I decided to switch it up this time, um, and show them Arrival. So, um, I really mm, don't have to change much of anything for this one because it's the same essay. It's just like, what's the big idea and how do the visual effects support it? Um, but that, that'll be a fun one just to watch. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, so it'll be fun to watch again. Oh, still one of my favorite movies yeah. from that year. Uh, the next week is documentaries and, uh, I cover like, what is a documentary and like, what are the, what counts as a documentary? What doesn't count? And how do we even think about this? What's nonfiction even mean? All that sort of stuff. And the film I'm showing them this semester is called fast, cheap and out of control. It's a really crazy documentary. That's, uh, basically like four interviews, um, one of them, one of the guys being interviewed is a uh, naked mole rat biologist. Uh, one of them is a robotics engineer. One guy. It was very confusing up until the point you said biologist. Okay. You said one guy is a naked mole rat biologist. Biologist. Yeah. So you get the you get the mole rat <laughs> okay. guy. You got the robotics engineer. You got a topiary gardener, and you got a lion tamer. And so the film is like... And they all walk into a bar. No, they're interviewed separately and just like uh, edited together. But then also there's footage of them doing their work or like of the mole rats or of the robots or lions or whatever. And what happens is like when the film starts, you've got like the mole rat guy talking about mole rats and then it'll cut to shots of mole rats. You got the robotics guy talking about robots and it'll cut to robots and so on and so forth. But eventually the film starts to like mix and match. And so like the lion tamer will be talking, but you'll see the topiary gardener or you'll see like the mole rat guy talking, but it'll cut to the robots and all the various combinations you can think of. And by the end of the film, you sort of start to get this like appreciation for like human life. It's, it's really hard to explain, uh, but it's really fantastic. But it's also, like, no other documentary that's out there. Like, it's real. Like, it's not telling a story. It's not about an event. It's not, like, a true crime documentary. Like, it's not it's not about any particular, like, um, thing. It's about an idea. It's exploring an idea. It's like an essay film, I guess. Um, so it'll be pretty challenging for them. But I, I anticipate about half of them will really like it, and the other half will hate it, and that'll be fun. Um the next week I show the graduate and we talk about, um, new Hollywood, the late sixties and early seventies. That's a fun one. Cause I don't, I don't, uh, prepare them at all for what the graduate is about. So when they start to realize that, um, you know, this very young Dustin Hoffman is about to have sex with very old Mrs. Robinson, it gets real interesting in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the next week we talk, we, uh, we talk about action films and also about race and how race is used in movies, race and gender. 
Um, and we watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And we'll, we're going to talk more about that later, so I'm just not even going to go there right now. Yeah. Um, but just know that I use a lot of the readings and discussion that week to prepare them to begin talking about race in movies. So then the next week we talk about American independent cinema. And that's where a lot of the information from the, the um, post-World War II cinema comes from because it's a very similar... Um, era and movement of films American independent cinema in the late 80s and early 90s because echoes a lot of what happened with the European cinema in the like late 50s and 60s um but we're gonna watch Reservoir Dogs I've been showing other stuff for independent cinema but I uh, decided it would be fun to show Quentin Tarantino and he's been you know he had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year and so he's on people's minds the thing about Reservoir Dogs is the characters are incredibly racist and there's a lot of use of the N-word and other racist language and ideas. And um, that's going to be an interesting discussion to have with those students. And I found this really great article for them to read um, about Reservoir Dogs and the racism of the characters in it that I think is going to make for a really interesting discussion. Hmm. And it's all going to be yeah, building towards cool. our last class, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, after Reservoir Dogs, we talk about the film Epic, and we watch Dunkirk. And then the basic question I have for them is, is Dunkirk an epic? So we talk, I show them a lot of clips and talk a lot about like the history of the film Epic and where it came from and the, the, the different things that are usually required for a film to be an epic. And Dunkirk meets some and does not meet others. Uh, the, the main thing it does not meet is that it's only an hour and 40 minutes long, and most epics are like three or four hours long. Um, and so we like you know we talk about all that then we watch the movie and then we have a debate in class as to whether or not it's an epic it's pretty fun uh almost done john almost done um, I'm, I'm hanging on okay. i'm here the second to last week of class we talk about the use of music in movies and how music can be used and in particular we talk about score soundtracks and musical numbers and up mm -hmm. until recently i've been showing this really terrific musical called hedwig and the angry inch and i decided to change it up this semester and watch and show them baby driver uh, and nice. so we're going to uh, talk about um, the Baby Driver's use of music and uh, the role music plays in that film. And that, that, that should be a good do time. You need, do you need me to come guest lecture on the, uh, the topic of the greatest actor of our generation? No, I don't need that. But thank in the, you. In the most effective growl and grunt in Hollywood. <laughs> so then the last film I'm showing uh, for the last week of class, we talk about political cinema and political activism through cinema. Um, and I spend a whole lot of time talking about Spike Lee and the work of Spike Lee and like what he does and that sort of thing. And I've been showing Do the Right Thing, which is Spike Lee's masterpiece. Right. Uh, but I decided to change that up uh, as well this semester. And we're going to watch Black Klansman. Um, and so I'm really hoping the discussions we have during Indiana Jones and Reservoir Dogs, as well as the readings that they should have done uh, for those two weeks, will really help us. Uh, get through talking about Black Klansmen. I'm, I'm a little bit worried, not worried, but nervous about Black Klansmen just because it so explicitly ties the racism that's depicted from the 70s in that movie to uh, today and Donald Trump right. and Charlottesville and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if I have some Trump supporters in the class, it might get real uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so... That'll be well. That's okay. They they can get over it. Well, but I mean, I have to make sure that everyone feels comfortable and has a voice in that class. No, oh, I know. And so I want to make sure that folks can um, talk about how the movie made them feel and uh, what they you know uh, what their responses to the film. And I would just I want to make sure that everyone's comfortable to talk in that class um, and nobody feels um, uh, I don't know 
It's going to be uncomfortable. Othered. Uncomfortable's okay. Nobody feels yeah right. targeted or um, mm-hmm. called out or any of that stuff. Singled out. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, it's all about keeping that challenge and support in yes. perfect harmony. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I just you know by that point we will have talked about race in film explicitly twice, and I may bring in the idea of Morgan Freeman's character in Unforgiven somewhere in there as well. Um, just in terms of like. Like, like if, cause if you've never, like, if you don't know anything about American culture and you watch Unforgiven, you, you might be led to believe that like race wasn't an issue in the 1800s, uh, because it just doesn't come up in the film. Uh, and I think that's mostly Clint Eastwood not knowing what to do with it and not knowing like he's probably, right. probably complicated feelings about race in general. Um, and I think he and Morgan Freeman are friends and maybe he didn't want to have put Morgan Freeman through that in the movie. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, makes um, sense. Yeah, but uh, so, but so is um, you know, is it a responsibility of a movie to depict race, even if like, or to, to depict racism, even if it's unpleasant? Is you know, is is that movie being irresponsible by not addressing race? You know, versus in you know, in Reservoir Dogs, those characters are very racist. Does that make the film racist? That's a whole discussion we're going to have as well when we talk about Reservoir Dogs. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. there will be two That's... other films I showed that I have not decided on yet, but they're for the midterm and final exam and they are, they are secret screenings. So students won't know what they are until we watch Ooh. them. Ah, very cool. No, that sounds interesting. Cool. Awesome. There you yeah. go. That's, that's the professor tweet. Ryan. That's it. That's the tweet. It was a long tweet. It, it wasn't a short tweet, but that's okay. All right transition time okay so on the other side of the break uh we're going to take a a more closer look uh at indiana jones and the temple of doom because john watched it last night yep who are you wow holy smoke Short round. Step on it. Okie dokie, Dr. Jones. Hold on potato. All right, John. What do you want to say about Indiana and I, Jones? I watched it because you posted, uh, first of all, can we just, can we pause for a second? And I get, I love, I love that you are passionate about using that one second every day thing. I know they're very happy (laughs) about how happy you are with its use. Uh But when you're wanting to show us something where details important, right? In this case, it was a, it was a stack of movies on a shelf or whatever uh, to show the movies that you're going to be using for your class. I was interested in the detail. I want to know what they are, but the damn conceit of that whole app is that you were zooming in and zooming out zooming in and zooming out and it was making me out i was moving the camera back and forth whatever you know what i mean it's fine um but and i can't like use i can't use my finger spread to zoom in on the titles and so it was the worst way to communicate (laughs) what you were trying to communicate did it occur to you that you could have paused it and just read them that's not what I'm looking for. I wanted to be able to zoom in. And no, it didn't occur to me. Then I actually have to click on it, and it's too much work, man. That was terrible. <laughs> what you did was bad, and you need to accept it. Okay. Anyway, now that I've chided you properly, 
Uh, you had Indiana Jones on there, and then Emily uh, from a podcast that uh, surpassed us, well, long before we even began, but uh, we once b- believed them to be our sister podcast, but that was mo- more aspirational right. <laughs> on our end than anything else. Anyway, uh, Emily from uh, the Large March Sentence podcast r- uh, commented, like, you know, I guess in su- surprise that you use Temple of Doom in a, like, film appreciation film studies class uh because <laughs> i mean i don't think it has a great reputation in general no it doesn't um although i think it's it, you know a lot of things that i read said that people have come to appreciate it a little bit more over time which i think is interesting uh which we'll probably get into here in a second but anyway that inspired me i was like you know what i'm gonna watch that because that's like we've talked about this a whole bunch because recently we i think we celebrated an anniversary of uh last crusade yeah it was like it's 30th right 30th birthday that's right and so that's i think is that's both of our favorites um if i remember correctly yeah i have a like uh, a huge affection for that movie yeah and me too and especially since like i've been to you know some of the places where that was filmed i have an even stronger connection to you it had but we've talked about has been to the place from glass crusade on your bingo card or wadi rum or jordan i think that that all counts and you can check off that one on your bingo card yeah it's just one box it's not multiple boxes uh what a jerk you're a jerk you're a jerk you're a jerk <laughs> i'd put you on the list if i, if I wanted to um all right film school guy well, let's see here uh, you derailed me completely by insulting me this is probably how you feel most of the time <laughs> You were talking about how uh, you have affection for that one because you've been yeah. places like that. But I think right. what you were going to say is something like you haven't watched Temple of Doom in a long time. Right. And and, and we've kind of talked about how like sometimes for me, like growing up, my favorite uh, of a series or whatever is just the one that we happen to own or we recorded off a of TV. And so it's the one I watched the most. In this case, Last Crusade is the one I watched the most. Uh, I think there's a lot of respect for Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, and Temple of Doom was just kind of out there. But Temple of Doom was the one that I watched the second most as a kid, which is interesting because it's like the darkest. Yeah. But I have not watched it in a very long time. So it was kind of coming at this with fresh eyes. And then you responded to Emily to explain like why you picked it, right? Which is when you're covering uh, race and you gender. Know, race and gender which and then it was like immediately it clicked and like ah yes that makes sense uh so i did i watched it last night um and man we there are some things that we need to talk about <laughs> i want to start and we, let's do this quickly i want you to tell what what the question i have on my notes sheet here is what even is the plot what is it oh it's, it's the it's, least complicated I mean, indiana jones yeah. plot but it's it's all like it happens it's all like don't you talk about how you don't like how plots hinge on coincidence Uh is this not the biggest like offender of that yeah well it's like a weird like it's it's a white savior narrative for one thing and it's it's i think i think it's playing around with this idea of like you know fate you know fortune and glory and whether or not Mm. the gods really brought indy to in uh to india or if it was just a, a coincidence. I think that's the idea anyway. Um, I don't know that it executes that very well, but yeah. No, and it's the most oddly structured movie. Like, the point at which I paused it, because I think I watched it in two separate sittings, 59 minutes in, and then with 59 minutes to go. I think that's right. Uh, and it at that 59-minute mark is where they're entering the... Uh, 
the whatever we call that the the temple set piece or whatever you yeah, know like underneath and so like palace right and like that's where a half of this movie takes place so yep. like our principal villain we haven't even met yet at the halfway point yeah it's so it's such a weird movie it is it's it's really oddly structured it's it's got that like you know they they all have a cold open of some kind you know where indy's on some kind of adventure to begin the movie but this is the one that is the most disconnected from everything else because in raiders um they introduce belloc in there because he's like basically racing belloc to get to the idol he doesn't know it but belloc is there so it ties into the main story even though the idol itself isn't part of the main story in last crusade um, it's all tied up with his father and what happened when he was a kid. So you have the whole right. the kid thing, and then it transitions to him as an adult. Um, but it's it's really more about establishing that relationship with Henry than it is anything else. Um, I don't remember what the cold open in uh, Crystal Skull is, but this one uh, it's we just, just pretend yeah, that one doesn't that one. exist. Um, but the uh, the cold open here is just like this the remains of Nurhachi and there's this like Asian guy that was his sidekick that isn't short round. And we don't know anything about him, but he dies immediately. Like the uh-huh. only, I, I think the only function of that scene is to just like have him be in Asia, I guess to introduce Willie and in short rounds, but like there's other ways that could have been done. It's a really like, it's a fun scene, you know, like you got the, you've got the Busby Berkeley dance sequence that has nothing to do with anything. I think Spielberg just wanted to do one. Um, okay. and, and then you've got, you know, the balloons and the diamond and crawling around on the floor for the antidote and all that stuff. But like, it's just, it doesn't do anything. It's, it's a really weird scene. Um, no, it's all very strange. And then like you get your, you know, uh, we're on a plane now <laughs> and then the plane, it turns out it's, uh, uh you know, it, it belongs to what, what is it? Lao Shea or Lao something Shea, like that. Yeah. The, the evil mob boss guy and the the pilots jump uh jump ship that's not right anyway yeah they jump out uh, after they've dumped the fuel tanks too that's it that's it uh the fuel comes out in the powder i don't know anything about fuel but that just seemed weird well to me. they're moving at a high that, speed it could just like. be the liquid like dispersing because they're okay. going at a high speed yeah or maybe what it does like at high altitude i don't know anything about airplanes i'm gonna be honest about that um but then yeah so it's like okay we're gonna crash and so they do this awesome i mean it's really cool but they, they jump out in the um the life raft or whatever uh-huh. and then now we're w- wherever we are where we are uh are we in india at I that think point it's the, they're on know. like they're in like the andes or something and so they're gonna isn't that the mountain range that's between china and india is the andes i don't know these things i'm terrible at geography i think that's right um but I so think that's they're, right yeah, yeah i'm not great either <laughs> yeah and so they end up because they you know they like slide down the mountain and then they go into a river and then they're on the rapids and some of the worst like like it's either green screen or like rear rear screen projection rear projection it's just yeah. terrible um it doesn't look great yeah and, and i can never figure out with that too like because these movies are all supposed to be like serials from the like 1950s or whatever. If, if maybe he wanted them to look a little cheesy, I don't know. But they're definitely mm. cheesy looking. But they do end yeah. up in India, but it's very convoluted right. how they get there. Right. And But the whole point is, I think, that originally, were they flying to Delhi in the first place? Yeah, they were. They remember. were flying. He's trying to get to... Um, yeah, I think he is trying to get to Delhi. Okay. And 
so they end up in this tiny Indian village. And this is the funny thing, apparently, is some trivia, some Temple of Doom trivia. Uh, India didn't want them to film there, so they did not give them permission. And so they end up filming most of the thing in Sri Lanka, which yeah. is not India. I'm not surprised so, they didn't want them to film uh, there. If you read the script, it's yeah. racist as fuck. Right. And, and then later, uh, I think they did put like a temporary ban on this movie because they don't like how they were depicted, which we'll get back to that for sure. Well, but it's, it's, um, it's, the, it's, it's all of it because the... You have the depiction of Indians that happens later in the film, which we will get to. But the depiction of Indians in early in the film is it's complete um, like uh, poverty porn. It's like these right. people are completely helpless. They're completely living in poverty. They don't. They can't do anything for themselves. They have no agency whatsoever. They're just waiting for some like white savior to fall out of the sky to help them. For Shiva to send Harrison Ford and right. his mighty whip and muscles. Yeah yeah uh yeah and then it's like okay they they go and then from there like they decide to go to pankot palace uh because of what he finds out in the town i right. guess well and that's tricky too then, because it's like you can't tell if he's motivated to to help the village out of like the kindness of his heart or is it the fortune and glory thing and he's just you know wanting to uh to like cash in on whatever riches he may find i mean and maybe it's supposed to, i think perhaps it's supposed to be complicated and he resolves that feeling by the end but sure um it is unclear what his motivation is to do like why he's helping yeah and and something we'll get to something i honestly did not know that i learned this morning while i sat on the toilet and was texting you because i did that today you do that enough to me as it is i feel like i it was my turn to return the favor i texted um, you a very special oh, gift yesterday okay uh i think i i ignored it uh, <laughs> for good reason. Dang it! Stop! Bring, you keep derailing you me. You found was out something about? on the toilet about the movie. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't want to give that away. But uh, the timing of this movie, it was confusing to me. Um, but like, whereas the other two really highlight Nazis and like show them as the obvious enemy, you know, like yeah. there's no way to make the Nazis look good. In this, like, we have British imperialism as a topic, but they don't, <laughs> they, it doesn't, like, really cast it in a terrible light. It's not a positive one. It's almost kind of neutral. But in the end, like, it's the, you know, British they, Indian army that shows up to save the yeah, day in some, the some day. respect. Yeah. And so it's like, that, that could have been there, and that could have been, like, an interesting topic. And that's obviously the motivation for these... Uh, for these followers of Kali Ma or whatever. Um, but that, that doesn't really play much of a role. And no. I was surprised by that. No. All right. There's a couple of specific things that I want to talk about. Okay. One is Kate Capshaw who <laughs> plays Willie. Um, first of all, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the worst roles ever. I think it's so bad. It's hard. I, I read one. I didn't write it down, but I remember the number. She screams a total of like 71 times in this movie. Yeah. Right. And even Kate Capshaw has like since said that like, it, you know, that, that all that character was, was like a dumb, a dumb blonde woman, you know, like who can't do anything or something like that. So she, she kind of uh, resents the character. Uh, the thing that I did not know, because I don't pay attention to stuff like this, for one, I don't know where she goes after this. So like her career doesn't really, doesn't seem like it really blows up. But it's because she marries Steven Spielberg. Yep. Which I can't. If I'm a man, okay, 
And I have uh, hired these two writers because Lawrence Kasdan doesn't write this one. He's unavailable, but he writes the other two, and that's probably why they're much better. Um, so you have these other two writers, and they write this 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 woman, this role of this lounge singer person who is just afraid of her own shadow and is very vocal about it. And I can't imagine... And a, like a terrible gold digger. I can't imagine... Like, of course, she's she's an actress. She's playing a role. I, I, there was no way that I'd be able to see her do all that and find myself attracted to her by the end of it. There is absolutely no way. So I was amazed to find out that she married Steven Spielberg. And I believe they're still married. Yep, they still I could are. Be, I could be wrong on that fact. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so that... let I mean, talk to me about Kate Capshaw, because that's obviously why you have this, uh, you know connected to the topic of of gender yeah i mean it's like one of the worst like female stereotypes it, it, it combines multiple stereotypes into one role and so she's just very annoying and screaming she's afraid of her own shadow like you said she also isn't is consistently an impediment to indie so she's she's not the villain of the movie but she's almost functions as an antagonist in places because she's so like uh like uncooperative and like supporting characters are usually there to be helpful <laughs> in one way right. or another and she's but not she's completely at all. incapable yeah and she, instead yeah. what she's there for is to be comic relief constantly and so the joke and, the, the film is oh. making jokes at her expense the whole time yeah but i find most of those jokes not funny like, no I'm just they're not... not i think i think again i think you think about steven spielberg and george lucas as you know in in the 1980s they would have been in their 30s they're uh or maybe or, no they weren't quite 40 yet they're in their 30s they grew up watching these serials and so they're they're just making um they're just making you know kind of like a, a recycled version of the serials they grew up watching like buckaroo Banzai and um flash gordon and stuff like that and those types of serials had these kind of like damsels in distress kind of female characters and also they're doing their they're riffing on bond as well and so bond always has like a woman of the film like a bond girl or whatever and so they're they're kind of remixing and mixing and matching these things and in this one particular case i don't think there was any attention paid to like oh how does this like play you know like yeah like e like individual scenes are kind of funny and like her performance in the role is pretty good in as much as she's doing what is asked of her and she's pretty right. convincing in that you know like you can you believe her uh, like in the role it's just the way it's written is terrible um yeah and so like it just i think that they were more concerned with that and then i've you know i've uh, at one point I read a biography in two on Spielberg and his parents were going through a divorce during this period. Uh, he had gone I think through he was going through his own relationship. He was. Yeah. He was. And his so was, was George Lucas. I think they were all going through like sort of dark periods in their lives. Right. And it also wasn't a time like, you know, folks were not woke as it were. And so I don't think they were being particularly sure. mindful or thinking about mindfully about these things. And so that's how you end up with like Kate Capshaw's character and the depiction of the Indians in the movie. Yeah, she was driving me. I mean, obviously she she's driving everyone crazy. For one, I don't think she had to act in some of those cases. Like apparently, like the the scene where she was covered in bugs, like she was legit covered in bugs, and she had <laughs> taken a, a mild sedative at the beginning of that scene to to overcome her own anxiety. Yeah, I think there was another scene involving like a snake that was cut because. Uh, like, cause she was terrified to, to, to do it anyway. 
it's it's all so terrible but yeah once you get to like the the primary action uh in the temple uh you know short round this tiny little kid is is pulling more weight than she is like she can't pick up something heavy and swing it at a bad guy come on she just stands there and screams at things she it is it is awful it is awful it is it is the worst damsel in distress that i can think of yeah uh, my students in, in like, like modern they, cinema every it's consistent every semester they they i mean some of them like the movie okay but they hate her character and the women in particular when we start to talk about it they're just sitting there with their arms crossed disgruntled it's really entertaining kind of um <laughs> to see their reaction to it but you know i give them lots of space to talk about it and why it's annoying and that sort of thing yeah yeah and it's interesting just i mean you think about it and i've never put these together before but it's it seems kind of obvious to me now uh if the if the pendulum swings completely the other way then we get um laura croft right like that's that's a a function of the pendulum you know flipping Mm. completely Mm -hmm. to the other end of the spectrum yeah and i think that's pretty interesting okay so k capshaw man that's terrible but let's talk about short round because one do we ever get an explanation as to why he's called short round I think it's just a nickname that Indiana Jones gave him because he's short. Okay. But that's like a military term, apparently, I, I learned. Oh, really? I had no but, idea. But uh, it has something to do with, like, um, oh, I don't know. Like, if you're, if you're shelling someone and you're, like, you, you're trying to work out your distance and it falls well short of the target or huh. whatever. It's a short round. But, like, I thought we'd get some explanation, and I was like, did I just miss it? But we don't we don't really get any backstory about this kid, so he's literally, like, the quintessential um, sidekick that does nothing except help. I mean, he, he plays a pretty important role, but I, I find this interesting. Jonathan K. Kwan is the actor. Yeah. Obviously, he makes this movie. This comes out in 1984, uh, and we're only talking about this because it came up on your list. It has nothing to do with any timing. It, like me... Uh, celebrated its 35th birthday because this came out like two weeks before I was born so it, it recently celebrated its 35th birthday like I did um, Jonathan Quake Kwan made this and then he made the Goonies and then he does basically nothing for the rest of his life like I how is that possible well I mean those were very successful movies I would imagine his residual checks kept him I mean he may have some kind of other job that I don't know about he just hasn't acted yeah i need to do some more digging i know i think he was a stunt coordinator for like the first x-men movie which is super random oh, that's weird. but he has literally 12 acting credits to his name and a couple of them are uh cindy lopper music videos well yeah but so. also like you think about like the, the the two movies he was in that we know him from in both mm-hmm. he is being asked to to play an asian stereotype and there's just right. like not a lot of mileage you can get out of that as a career. There's only so much that you yeah. can do with like, that. He came up at a time when there weren't portrayals of Asian Americans in movies that weren't stereotypical. And just in general, there aren't Asian characters in movies that often in American cinema, not until way later into the 80s, unless it's like a martial arts movie or something, you know? Like there just there would not have been a lot of roles for him that weren't doing exactly what he sure. did in Indiana Jones yeah. and Goonies. Yeah, that makes sense. It's also possible that it didn't age well. Who knows? It's fine. That happens. Yeah. I mean, just look at Haley Joel Osment. He didn't age super well, and he's found 
roles, you know, they don't come up as much. Although I, I think I forgot to tell you, he's 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 in the boys on Amazon, Ooh, and it's actually kind of perfect the the character that he plays, huh. uh, a former a former child star. Oh, that's funny. Uh, it's 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 pretty meta. I like yeah. it. But okay, it, so that's it, Jonathan K. Kwan. I okay, go ahead. I was just gonna say it is, and it's it's worth mentioning though that like. Like his portrayal in the movie is generally very positive. He's a positive force in the movie. He helps out Indy. He's yeah. very loyal. But it doesn't mean that these things that the, it's not activating and using stereotypes and that ultimately oh, yeah. can be harmful as well. Um, and that's just like a thing we talk about in my class as well. Yeah, and I think that's like probably one. I mean, there are degrees of harm here, right? Like in terms of the furthering the like really over the top stereotype of of Asians uh, and. Uh, you know, like you no, know, it doesn't play well. But then, like you think about the the depiction of uh, of Indians and the Hindu religion, like that's that's probably you know in terms of uh, degrees of harm, that's it's probably crime uh, on the higher is. end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll pass over Jonathan K. Kwan, but you know, shout out to him. Hopefully, you're doing well, buddy. I, I'm pretty sure you're still alive because you're not that old. Anyway, uh, I have three things written down that I did not know. Okay. And I'll start with the one that I, I uh, alluded to earlier. I had no idea that this was supposed to be a prequel. Yeah. At no point, <laughs> at no point had I even considered that. Mm. At no point does the film even do anything to suggest, as far as I know, that it's taking place before the events of uh, Raiders. But Only I, if you're paying from attention what to I, like dates, would you know, really? No, and I wasn't. Uh, but... As it as it turns out, they did that because he, uh, Lucas and Spielberg didn't want Nazis to be the villain again, and so the only way I guess to do that, as if other things can't be going on in the world, I don't know, but the only way to do that was to set this like the is it the year before the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but, but mm. they they did a weird thing though um, that I alluded to to you in a text message. Um, they they make a joke in the movie that only works in the context of this movie coming out after Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so it doesn't make any sense within the context of the film itself. So towards the end of the movie, after they're out of the temple and it's the sequence that takes place after that, when they're like, they're, they're not quite on the bridge yet, but they're going to, they're going to be on the bridge soon. There's this scene where Indy is like, uh, he, he runs and encounters like two guys with swords and uh, they, they like, you know, they flash their swords and swing them around just like the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark does. And Indy like gets this look on his face like, I know how to handle this. And he goes to reach for his gun and shoot them just like he did in Raiders. And you can even hear in the on the soundtrack in the score, you can hear ba-da-ba-bum, ba-da-ba-bum, which is the, the theme of the music from the marketplace sequence in Raiders. But the joke is... Um, that he doesn't have his gun because he lost it earlier in the movie. So the movie is playing on your knowledge of what happened in Raiders. And it's, it, it's, it's goofing. Like he knows what he did in Raiders because mm-hmm. of the look on his face and the expectation that he's going to have that he can shoot them. Uh, but yeah, no, there's it, it, the movie takes place before Raiders. So that, that joke <laughs> yeah. is like the worst kind of when we talk about like, I guess fan service or whatever, because it's completely unmotivated uh-huh. by plot. It doesn't make sense within the context of the movie, like all that stuff. He had a premonition that that's what was going to happen to <laughs> yes. him. Yeah. Okay. So I had no idea this was supposed to be a prequel. That's uh realization. Number one, realization. Number two, and then this is like the first one that I had. Uh, Cause I was like, that guy's voice sounds real familiar, but we get like 
an assistant type character uh, for a very short scene as they're they've left like the 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 club or whatever that they're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got we've got Indy, we've got Willie, we've got Short Round, and uh, I get yeah. The, this assistant character sets up the flight for for the crew to get to Delhi. Uh, and of course, like the main bit here is that like it's it's with a bunch of chickens or something. Um, you don't see the man's face really at all because this is all like a wide shot more or less. You hear his voice and you kind of see his form, and it sounded a lot like to me like like Dan Aykroyd. And it turns out it was Dan Aykroyd in the weirdest cameo ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, did he just happen to be there that day? And like, hey, Dan, you want to step in and do this? Did someone not show up? Like, because it's not like he was a big star in 1984, right? Yeah, I mean, he would have done the Ghostbusters. That's the year Ghostbusters came out. He would have been on SNL for a while. Like, yeah. So it's like, why not Why not actually show the man's face? I think it was like they they were buddies. They were friends or something. And he just wanted to be in it. I, I don't know the whole story. I heard it once, but I it wasn't important enough for me to remember it. I mean, um, I guess it's a, not that odd. We had we had what's his face in um, in Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Well, we had a couple of weird cameos there that you don't really know unless you look at the cast list. Right. What's it? The, the James Bond. I forget his Daniel name Craig. all the time. Yeah. Daniel Craig. He's he's the stormtrooper that's watching over Ray. But so I guess it's not that odd. But it was just I had no idea Dan Aykroyd. If you had asked me that question, like. In what uh, Indiana Jones movie does Dan Aykroyd appear? I would have looked at you like you were insane because I had no idea. It'll save you though, because uh, it, it'll it will come up in a trivia game like a bar trivia, and you'll be the only one that knows. Yeah, I will. I will win, and I will feel uh, victorious in that moment. Uh, I also didn't really know this movie's connection to the uh, PG-13 rating, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that seems like a, a significant moment in history because at that point, what we just had PG and R. We had, did we have G? Yes. Uh, maybe. G, I don't know. Uh, maybe. But okay. the, the whole deal was that this movie was rated PG, and then people were like, "What the fuck, Steven Spielberg?" People are getting their hearts ripped out. Because it is dark. Yeah. <laughs> it is and violent so, and it is yeah. dark. So Spielberg petitioned the MPAA to create um, in between one, which other countries had, like. Um, the UK has one that's it's I think it's based on 14 years of age, but it's like it's pretty common throughout the world and other countries already had it. We just didn't. And so this movie kind of uh, provoked that that changed to the ratings. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was a lot of criticism that followed and apparently uh, similar criticism to what uh, they got for Gremlins. And so I think mm-hmm. Spielberg petitioned uh, MPAA to create this and they did. So, yeah, did not know that at all uh okay so let's get to like i guess the kind of the main topic of conversation that's probably where we'll wind it down uh but the the depiction of 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 the country of india uh of the native people that live there of their religion it's all so very bad their cuisine discuss (laughs) that is the craziest thing ever like who thought that was a good idea? I, again, and who like I actually think they were eats just that like, way. I think they were reverting to like fourteen-year-old boys, and like, what would it be real gross to show the meeting? Oh, let's do like a thing where they cut a snake open and a whole bunch of little snakes come out. Let's do eating bugs and let's do monkeys' brains and soup with eyeballs in it. Like whatever we can do to like up the gross factor, it'll be fun. And you know when that worked for me? 
when you were like when 12. I was a child. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I was like, oh man, that's it's so gross. But that was like the most memorable thing. I mean, one of the most memorable uh, scenes in the movie is that that dinner banquet, and specifically like the the monkey head, and you have the ridiculous like large fellow. I don't even know what what nationality he is. I don't think he's Indian. <laughs> he sure doesn't seem Indian. Uh, but he's like doing the uh, I don't even the play by play. Chilled monkey brain, and it's so ridiculous. It is, and of oh. course you have <laughs> Kate Capshaw doing her thing, just making making the whole thing worse. Right. I, I I what I will do though is like give props to the, like production design and also the um, oh sure the sound design in that scene is amazing. Like the sound of all those snakes coming out and the the sound the the heads make when they take the heads off of the like the scalp off of the monkeys. Like it's very well produced. <laughs> it's very very yeah. well produced. But I think wow. this uh, this movie did didn't win an Academy Award for uh, visual effects or something. Surprised. I'd have to look at that. Yeah. Um, yes, it's that's all so ridiculous. It, so you basically, if you have no connection to the country of India, <laughs> as a young person watching this movie, now now you know that they they basically eat mush and they don't have enough of it in the, in like a, in the kind of more rural setting. So like this tiny amount of whatever that was, it looks more like African food than anything else that they're eating with their hands, and which probably wouldn't have been uncommon. But, like, you know, that's more than these people eat in two weeks or whatever he says. So you get that. You get the the poverty. And then you get this uh, disgusting array of things that nobody eats. Uh, and yet everyone seems pretty content to to gnaw on some eyeball soup uh it's that's so you walk away from this thinking like okay that's what uh, that's what people from india eat right there <laughs> this is what we call othering yes uh and then you have the elements of, of their religion and that's something honestly like i probably did not pay attention to much as a kid um but hinduism is an interesting uh you know it's an interesting religion uh, obviously polytheistic and just understanding the the elements there um but one thing i had never really kind of latched on to as 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 a younger person watching this movie that definitely like stood out to me this time around is you have and i don't uh what's the the main kind of shaman guy with the the, the Mola makeup molaram um kalima shook today uh you <laughs> you have him kind of do his villain monologue at some point kind of expressing what the purpose was of all this and it basically comes down to like a uh we're gonna take down christian god (laughs) you know and it was like pagan god showdown of the ages we got our pagan god kali versus uh jesus's dad and it's like what is that really what we're doing here it's it's incredible it's yeah. so bizarre. Well, and then you have like uh, Harrison Ford shooting back with, like, uh, I don't know if any of the stuff he says is true, but he's, you know, they're portraying him as having this knowledge of what Hinduism really is about, and talking about how he he perverted Kali or whatever it is. I don't remember exactly what his lines are, but it's typical white savior stuff where like the white guy knows better than the like the local folk what their own religion is and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, and then he, like, the kind of crucial moment uh, on the the bridge, uh, you know, after he's 
He's uh, sliced it with the sword, and he he invokes the name of Shiva, which brings power to the stones, and that burns up in the bag, and mm-hmm. and then that's the end of Kolaram or whatever his name is. Kolaram. Um, whatever. I'm gonna call him what I want to call him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's already been othered enough. I'm just gonna add on to it. It's yeah. It's it's all very insane. Is all. I I don't even know how to express it beyond that. Point. It is. It's, but again, it, when. It's terrible. When you're a kid, it's just a spectacle. It is. It's like, it's ooh, very, look at all the crazy stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and it is very, like, engaging in that way. Um, as an adult, the, one of the things that I'm struck by every time I watch it, and I've used this film every semester I've taught this class, so I've seen it a lot in the last couple of years, is <laughs> how exhausting this movie is. Because, like, once they get in the temple, like, it just never stops. Like It, it never lets up. It never does. And, like, that minecart thing yeah. goes on forever. Oh, my God. And it's, like, it's really well done, <laughs> but it just goes on and on and on. And it's just, like... And then they get out of there, but then they have to do the whole fight on the bridge. And the bridge scene is shot spe- shot and edited spectacularly. It's, it's really beautiful looking. Um, but, again, like, it's just, like... It's just... By that point, I'm just, like, God, can this movie please be over? It's just... I'm so exhausted by the end of it. And have you asked the question, and that's a good point, but have you asked the question, like, the one thing we get from, like, the tiny Maharaja, which, of course, we had to use the term Maharaja. You can't have a movie about Indian culture without that word. Um, You know, once he comes to, once Shorty burns him and brings him back to functional living, uh, he says, you know, like, take the left tunnel, right? But and of course we get the right tunnel is bathed in red light because it has to be. Right. That's how we know it's the bad one, and that's the way they go. <laughs> what would have happened if they took the left tunnel? I think they just would have like have gotten out really it? quick. It would have been quick and easy. They would have. You know, that's that's <laughs> the implication. Ro- is it's the most direct way out. <laughs> they wouldn't have gone on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> right. That basically felt like we've put this in here so that way we can create a Universal Studios ride. Right, and I didn't exactly. know I don't know if that existed after this or before this. I don't like, think it did because if you think about like you know they would have had to include a whole bunch of stuff from the movie in there, which meant they would have just mm-hmm. had to make like a straight up racist roller coaster ride. <laughs> <laughs> which would have been really weird. <laughs> not a wonderful life after all. Right. Oh man. Yeah, that no, it's it's also bizarre. Uh, I did not look this up. One thing that really like that became comical to me uh, is that the like this evil sect of of Hinduism that are worshiping Kali or whatever are called thuggies. Thuggies, <laughs> and yeah. I think that's I think that's an actual actual thing in history. So that's fine, but it just sounds so ridiculous. Uh, you know, it the thuggy thuggies sounds bananas and also i have to ask so the big the big fellow that he has the uh the fight with on the the conveyor belt thing yeah why does he look irish did because he <laughs> he's the exact same stunt man who he fought uh-huh. under the plane in raiders of the lost ark oh so that was all was that is that fan service is that what that or is no, that that's not fan service it's just them you know like using a stunt man they're used to working with it also means uh-huh. this movie features like brown face oh yeah and but it, it see i think maybe they got away with it and i'm using air quotes but you can't see that of course uh because he just looks like dirty you know like he's got soot all over him but like he has like a decidedly like red hued beard and he does not look south asian 
in any conceivable way. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, but he's he's very specifically coded as Indian because of the turban he's wearing and the clothes he's wearing and because right. of where he works, you know, like and he's wearing like brown makeup. He's he's in brown face. Yikes. Yeah, this is uh this is all really it's an interesting movie. I don't know. Like they just it, it's such it feels like such a departure. It also is among the times where like I feel like you get different depictions of Indiana Jones, you know, like he's the adventurer but he's also a scholar. And I feel like in 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 uh I can't really speak to Raiders of the Lost Ark, but in Last Crusade we see him as Scott we see him in the classroom for one, you know, like yeah. you know, he's he's the bespectacled teacher uh who you know his students have lots of questions and he doesn't want to stick around to grade things because he got he has to go out on adventures but he's a smart dude in this he's he's action hero indiana jones he is yeah and, and he get, muscled up like crazy you get the uh the scholarly indiana jones in raiders as well there's a classroom scene uh, but you know the because the whole thing takes place outside of that context you never get to see him in the classroom here I think the only time he goes into professor mode is they do have a short discussion about some Indian history and the thuggy at that dinner. And it's cause like all of the, all that crazy food stuff is intercut with this conversation he's having right. with the freaking prime minister of India, who is also part of the thuggy. It's not just the, and that's like, the w- symbolic Royal Maharaja. Right. It's also the fucking prime minister of the country. Yeah. That's all very weird because then he, he just, he appears once it's time for, I, I think once Indy has consumed the, the blood out of the skull, which was very gross. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so odd how like you don't see him before in the previous scene where they sacrifice that dude who's somehow able to still keep living after his heart has been removed from his chest. It's also pretty easy to remove his chest cavity or remove his heart from his chest cavity. Uh, but yeah, that guy just shows up again. It's like, Oh, so I guess he was bad the whole time. Gotcha. Cool. But it's, yeah, I don't remember Very poorly him. I, executed. If he's in that scene, he's probably just in the background or something. Um, I don't remember now. But he definitely shows up later as part of the thuggy. Yeah, I don't know. There's so much about this that's confusing to me. It is. And the thing is, also, like... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just going to say, like... So we get the, the first sacrifice happens, and they're all watching it. And there's the crowd that's, you know, like, cheering along and whatnot... Uh, and then they just disperse. They just disappear. They go away. Yeah. Very conveniently. And we have so no that sense way, of India- like, who they are or where they go or what the role in the palace is <laughs> yeah. or any of it. Right. It's just so odd. It's like, ah, oh, we've cleared the set now. You can go down there, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> so we can move this thing along. Right. So bad. Yeah. What were yeah. you going to say? Oh, just that like the weird thing watching it over and over again like I have is that like it is like entertaining in places you know like it's it's still a steven spielberg movie and so like it's very well made from a technical standpoint and like there's like the jokes work like that whole like willie we are going to die and that weird face he makes when he says that like it's still funny um and so it's got like, i don't it's, know it's still got its moments like where it's pretty entertaining but it's just like the the whole thing together imp- like is just i mean there's definitely moments that are not good and not entertaining and sure. uh scream as like offensive and 
and like you know but like and the pacing is all wrong like all of it like as a to- as a total work it doesn't work but like there are no. pieces of it that i think are pretty fun like um when he brings her the plate of fruit and they have that whole thing about like the, where they're gonna have sex like, that kind of comes out of nowhere in a weird way but also like their banter is kind of fun it took me like until till i was an adult to really understand uh that whole scene because the way he leaves and they're fighting and then they're talking about each other in separate rooms is kind of a weird scene. But, um, anyway, like, like pieces of it to me kind of work. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's very misguided. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To me, like some of the, and this is the last thing I'll say some of the comedic things that they try to work in, because apparently like they recognized that it was, way darker than I think maybe originally intended or whatever. And so they try to work in some more of those physical gags, but they came off as weird to me. Like we have this pretty like scary uh, fight scene on the conveyor belt. And then I think he like throws a hammer or whatever, or drops it and it like falls and bumps one of the thuggy guys on the head. And it makes it very, a hollow, very like bunk sound. Yeah. It's a very cartoonish moment. Yeah. Also, I have a problem with like the Indiana Jones uh, punch sound effect should only be when Indy punches people. It should not be like when when uh, Willie slaps him. I think it makes the same noise. I'm like, no, that's no, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. What a weird movie. It is. That's all. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that'll do it for this extra long episode of the Damage Control God. Podcast. I might release this in two parts. <laughs> do it. Uh, stay tuned for another episode of the Damage Control Podcast coming to you next week. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. Uh, our opening theme song is Kaiju by Tribe One. You can check him out on Twitter at Tribe One One. That's Tribe O N E W O N. And you can listen to his music at Tribe One And with some final thoughts, here's John. I hope all of you have a lovely day. What is wrong with saying lovely, having a lovely day? Nothing. I just wished everyone to have a lovely day. That's a nice thing to say. After the earth earth shattering conclusion, once justice is served, when at the last possible moment, the world is again saved from the very brink of destruction. We'll be here to pick up the pieces. He's John. I'm Ryan. This has been the Damage Control Podcast. Thanks for listening. Game over, man. Game over. Kalima Shakti Day.